Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Welcome up, Dave Jensen. Uh, thank you, Dave, for being with us. Um, let's just pray for Dave uh, as he comes to share and open God's word. Do you want to bring that up? Okay. Um, yeah, this isn't just something that we do from the front and sort of pray. Somebody up here prays. Please join with me in praying for Dave. Um, and for this time as he opens God's word. So um, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you for um, your presence with us, Lord, for all that you've been doing and sharing and touching our hearts about um, already, Father. And we just want to thank you and honor you for uh, Dave. Father, thank you for his ministry in, uh, in All Saints and all that you're doing in him and through him there. God, thank you for uh, your work in his life, a work of grace, a work of redemption, a work of salvation through Jesus. And um, Lord, we just ask now for your anointing, your freshness, your um, unction by the Spirit, Lord, just to guide him as he speaks, Lord, and, and brings your word to us, Father. Um, and so we ask that you just bless him, refresh him as he seeks to refresh us and challenge us, Lord, and help us to hear your voice through him. And Lord, we pray for ourselves as well, Lord. We don't want this to be another talk. We don't want this to be another night. Lord, we long for this to be something that moves us, that changes, that stirs, that transforms us, renews our minds, um, and glorifies you as we leave this place. So Lord, um, just open up our hearts, prepare us for all that you will share and say now through Dave. In Jesus' name. speak to you about grief. You know, the definition of grief is intense sorrow, but for those of us who've experienced true grief, we know that words can't possibly begin to encapsulate the enormity of what grief is, intense sorrow, anguish, agony. This week, my wife got a text message from back home in Australia. Uh, a good friend of hers, father, is a very fit man in his early 60s, and in back in Oz, a lot of us have got backyard swimming pools, um, and this man every morning would rise at 5am and do a bunch of laps uh, before getting ready for work. He was doing his regular routine, which he'd done for years and years, when he had a stroke in the pool. But the stroke is not what killed him. What killed him was that no one else was there, and he drowned. Two hours later, his wife rose walked out. Grief. Grief takes your breath away, makes your head spin. Experiencing grief is the knowledge and the understanding that life, you have to turn me down brother, I'm, I will shout, life will never, ever, ever be the same in light of what's just happened. And I want to put it to you today that grief for every single person on this planet is the most powerful fuel we as human beings have. Do you know that? More than ambition, more than your dreams, more than your ideals, grief changes 
things, for the, for the good or the bad, for the right or the wrong. Grief can drive you forward with a newfound perspective and energy and zeal to live a life that counts, to no longer waste your days on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, but to go out and live life. Or grief can fuel bitterness, anger, frustration, malaise, and destroy a person. And I want to put it to you today that we cannot talk about missions until we talk about grief. You can't understand missions until you understand grief. I want to put it to you that in Holy Scripture, the number one motivator that God gives us as people for missions is grief. And if you look all throughout Christian history for the past 2,000 years, at the heart of every revival, every great outbreak of gospel proclamation, regardless of the result, grief has been at the heartbeat and at the core. And grief is here today what will change your life, 20s and 30s. It's kind of considered the new youth group, isn't it? You're not expected to have grown up by now. You know, Hudson Taylor went to China at the age of 21. Amy Carmichael was 20. First pray that God gives us a sense of godly grief as we look at his word tonight. That we're not stuck in malaise. We're not stuck in bitterness and boredom. We're not stuck in the humdrum, middle-class, Northern Irish Christianity, which defines so much of this beautiful country. Let's pray to God, Father. You know us. Your word tells us that you count our tears as we cry. You know the hairs on our head. You know the weeks we've had. You know the days that we've had. For many of us, days defined by sin. Days defined by lust, anger, frustration, and bitterness, doubt. Lord, you know the devil loves to make us feel our worth in our sinfulness, not in our sanctification. Father, we pray that you would create in us new hearts again and new again. You would drive us forward to know you, to grasp hold of you, to understand you. Because when we understand you, that's when we understand life. I pray that through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word, that you would grip us and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me take you to one of my favorite parts uh, of the Bible, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written 800 years before Jesus. He was a prophet. Isaiah is most well known for his messianic prophecies in the latter half of the book of Isaiah. But the first part is actually not that friendly. Isaiah goes to all the Jewish people and he is a prophet of woe. He does not hold back and he goes there and he proclaims God's judgment upon God's people alleged who have turned their backs on him. How does that all begin? Well, that begins with one of the most staggering scenes in all of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, we might think that God was appearing to people in the Old Testament again and again and again, but that did not occur, hardly ever. 
And what we have in Isaiah chapter 6 is a staggering scene with this regular man of of flesh and blood, not different to us, a sinner just like us, is taken into the very presence of the Lord. And what he experiences and what we get to experience through his recollection and through God's word revealed changes everything. I'm going to read to you the first five verses or so of Isaiah 6, and I'm going to ask you to do something which is decidedly un-Church of Ireland, which is where I'm from. I'm going to ask all of you to shut your eyes. That's not true. A lot of people in the Church of Ireland shut their eyes in church services. However, generally not for this reason. I'm going to ask everyone here to shut your eyes and do something for me. I want you to try to visualize what Isaiah sees. I can't see if you're doing it, so it doesn't matter if you don't, but if you would do that for me, let's... Let's visualize what Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah is taken into the temple and there, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is taken into the very presence of the Lord in the temple and what he sees there takes his breath away, evidently. He walks in and there is God seated on a throne, the Lord on a throne with a robe so big it fills the temple and there's angels shouting to one another. There's earthquakes and shaking and smoke. It's visually incredible. But this scene is not about Isaiah and it's not about the temple. Believe it or not, this scene is actually screaming out to Isaiah and screaming out to us 2,800 years later the same thing over and over and over again. Let me point it out to you. Think about those angels we've got there. What are they doing? Who are they? Well, they've got six, six wings each. What are they doing with them? Well, with one pair of them, they're hovering. Seems normal for wings. For another pair, they're covering their eyes, and another pair, they're covering their feet. Why are they doing that? Well, in the Old Testament of the Bible, people would cover their feet when they were on consecrated and holy ground. Why are they covering their eyes? We know why. Because when God would appear to people in the Old Testament and the New, people's appearances and images would be permanently changed. No one can stand in the very presence of the Lord and not be irreversibly transformed. God's power and presence is so blinding and so transcendent, so magnificent that these angels have to cover their eyes. But have a look what they're saying, verse 3 and verse 4. These angels are saying back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why are they repeating it? Well, you see, in Hebrew, there is no punctuation. There's no underline or italics or bold. There's no emojis to indicate expression and depth. The way that they would do that is by repetition. And there's only one element of God's character in all of the Bible, which is repeated three times to designate emphasis and depth and meaning. And it is not God is love, 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 although he is. And it's not God is peace, peace, peace. It's God is holy, holy, holy. This whole picture 
is telling us that God is holy. The problem with that is that word holy, isn't it? Because what does that word actually mean? It's one of those religious words that we can think we know what it means, but can't quite define it or articulate it. Well, the word holy means, as many of you will know, set apart and dedicated. But it's bigger than that. You can have pink hair, for example, and be different and set apart, but it doesn't necessarily make you holy. You see, in the Bible, in the use of the word holy, it's not just something separation that makes it holy, it's what it is dedicated to. Holiness is something or someone's separation and dedication to God. That means if you are a Christian, you are holy by your standing before God because of the holiness you are clothed in by Jesus Christ, but you also grow in holiness the more your life is dedicated to God. So what do we mean when we say God is holy, holy, holy? My friends, what this means is staggering. It means God is separate, set apart, and dedicated to himself. He is dedicated to his glory. That is his chief end. Please do not superimpose your own arrogance onto God's character. It's very difficult for us because we are egotistical. We take pride in anything. That is not God. God is dedicated to his own glory because that is what he deserves. He's dedicated to his own praise because that is what he deserves. Now, I want to ask you this question. If you were met with that scene, if you walked into this church tonight, you walk in through these doors and boom, that's what you see. What do you think you would do? Many of us, of course, would think we'd drop to our knees and praise God, would raise our hands and say, God, hallelujah, you are magnificent. But Isaiah, a man of renown, holiness and righteousness, he's not like us, not in that way. Verse 5, Isaiah's response. Woe is me. Three. I am ruined, he says. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah feels grief. Why? Because Isaiah does not just see the powerful perfection of the holy God, but through seeing God's holiness, sees for the very first time his own wretchedness, his own unrighteousness. You see, Isaiah grieves, and he should grieve, because he has fallen well short of God's glory. Isaiah, a man of renown, godliness, and holiness, has not been giving God the glory that he deserves. He hasn't been obeying him. And in that instant, Isaiah drops to his knees and cries out, Woe is me! What he deserves from God is punishment. What he deserves from God is the grave. But what does he get? What he gets is not the grave. It's grace. God does not strike Isaiah down through his unholiness and sinfulness. God reaches out and atones for him. He gives this grief for his men. And for you and I, my dear friends, let us be honest with one another. How many of us, even if you are a Christian here tonight, as most of us probably are, how many of us still slavishly attempt to work our way into God's good favor, even post-conversion? Still try to earn good things from Him by our own 
obedience. How many of us are convinced that God only loves us because we do good things? Let me ask you this question. When you go out there to Bangor, when you go out to Northern Ireland, Ireland, the United Kingdom, the world, how many people do you think are slavishly trying to impress God under the belief that God's love is for sale? Let me assure you, the vast, vast, vast majority. That is the blasphemy of every other religion, including atheism, that you must be good enough. But here is what God tells King David upon David's grief at his sinfulness, at the death of Uriah, upon his, his adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. My Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. My dear friends, Isaiah is given grace by God. And for you and I, we have Jesus. And isn't that name the most magnificent thing you've ever heard? Jesus. You know what that word means? Savior. We have Jesus. God gives us grace because of Jesus. Jesus Christ died for scumbags like us. And you know you're a scumbag because you get a front row seat for your own sin, don't you? Jesus Christ died for sinners so we could become saints, sinners, so our unholiness could be ripped away and we could be made holy. So how does grief, how does grief lead to grace? And how does grace, grief lead to mission? Well, my friends, I understand that we've looked at a lot of things within that scene in a very short period of time. But I just wanted to end on the final verse of that section in verse 8. You see, Isaiah comes before God, woe is me. God gives him grace and forgives him. But then God turns to his angels in verse 8 and he says, whom shall I send? Whom will go for me? You see, Isaiah understands in that moment that God has a message for the nation. He has a message for the lost. He has a message for the sinner. And so Isaiah, freshly atoned and freshly forgiven, stands. And he says, here am I. Send me. Glory leads to grief. Grief, grief leads to grace. But grief also leads to going. Why? How is it possible that this grief can lead people like you and I to go into far-flung regions of the world to tell a hostile and uninterested people the truth about Jesus Christ? Well, my friends, it's in verse 3, the words of the angels. It's all about the last word they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Remember, what is God dedicated to? His own glory. Now, glory, again, a bit like holy, can be a bit difficult for us to understand. We're not quite sure how to articulate it. Let me try and work it out, though. Think about the Olympics. If you compete at the Olympics, what are you competing for? It's not money. You don't win any financial reward for winning a gold medal in the Olympics. No, what you're competing for is the opportunity to go to the top of that dais, bow your head down, and have a gold trinket to put around your neck. But that gold trinket actually isn't worth much. They don't sell for much on eBay. What's actually the motivation behind the athletic endeavor? It's glory. Glory is someone or something receiving their due praise. 
someone or something receiving the adulation that they deserve. Mission is all about God's glory. Mission is all about God receiving the praise, God receiving the adulation, God receiving the worship, the glory that he deserves. And there is only one way that occurs, my brothers and sisters. And let me assure you of what it isn't. It's not through a Christianized government and shops shut on a Sunday. That might happen, it might be great, wonderful. If it doesn't, wonderful. It's not even through necessarily the the beginning of Christian schools and Christian charities. Those things are wonderful, but on their own, they're not enough. The only way God is given glory by broken sinners like us is when men and women drop to their knees and cry out, woe is me. When men and women recognize God for who he is, recognize Jesus for what he's done. When they no longer sideline him into irrelevancy and sideline him and pet him on the head and say, nice Jesus, safe Jesus, stay over there, Jesus. When they no longer are so caught up in the empty ritualistic religion of their youth and run towards the cross. When they make Jesus the Lord of their lives, my dear friends, that is godly grief. And that godly grief leads us to other godly grief, a true grief for the lost, understanding their future outside of God's grace. Can you imagine? I have five children. Two of them aren't Christians, my teenagers. They're not Christians. Will you go to them? Will I? That's where godly grief leads. And godly grief joyfully, blissfully, magnificently leads us to a fresh and renewed understanding of the grace of God constantly. So how do you get it? You might be hearing all this stuff and going, well, that sounds very ethereal, sounds a bit theological. How how do I actually get this godly grief, my dear friends? It's as simple as it is difficult. It's difficult because we're sinful. It's simple because we're spirit-filled. Love God more. Are you truly dedicated to the Lord? If someone was to observe your life without your knowledge, would they think this is someone who's utterly dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ? Love God more. Do not spend your mind and waste your your intelligence being filled with non-stop entertainment. Love God through reading His Word. Understand who He is and what He likes and what He loves and what He hates. Grow in your obedience of him. Join a church. Become a part of the body of believers. Live a life on mission, desperately seeking to see the lost saved. Love God more. And that is how we are driven by godly grief. Through a true love of God. So I've gone over time, but let me just finish with one final very practical thing for us. What does it look like to go as a result of this grief? Three things. First step, go across the street. There's not one missionary that you'll read about in all the books. There's not one missionary that you'll admire from a distance who has not started by going next door, going inside their house, going across the street, crossing that pain barrier and witnessing to Jesus Christ. 
will you go? Please do not operate under the illusion that Northern Ireland is a Christian country. That is the most absurd statement I've had the displeasure of hearing relentlessly for two years, that this is a Christian nation. Anyone who's been here for five minutes knows it's not a Christian nation. The majority of people in this country are going to hell. Go across the street. Secondly, go across your community. Oh, it's just easier as an Aussie, isn't it? We can just bag out everyone. I'm not bagging you guys. I love Northern Ireland and I love the Northern Irish community. But this is the most tribalistic and separated country. And I'm not even talking about Protestants and Catholics. How about Presbyterians and Anglicans? Many of us seem far more concerned with having theological arguments than we do with actually winning the loss to Jesus, don't we? There's five different streams of Presbyterianism in this country. Wonderful. However, my dear friends, cross your community. Speak to the Roma. Speak to the refugees. Speak to the Roman Catholic. Speak to the Greek Orthodox. Speak to the Muslims. Speak to the atheists. Speak to the loyalists. Speak to the orangemen. Speak to the working class prod. Speak to the rich. Speak to the poor. Speak to those people you believe have no chance of ever coming to know and love Jesus. And finally, go across the world. My dear friends, do you know how many people would love to be in your position? 20s and 30s, many. You can go. You think it gets easier when you get older? It doesn't. You can go. Do you know how many Christians there are who've become Christians later in life who look on you with envy? the opportunities you have to proclaim Jesus to the nations, you can go. And the question you must ask is not, why should I? But why shouldn't you? Oh, I don't feel a guilt trip at the end of it. It's not about that. But my dear friends, will you feel the Spirit challenge you today? Will you go? Will you go to Palestine? Will you go to Egypt? Will you go to Iraq? Will you go to Australia, Greece, New Zealand, France, Spain, Italy? Will you go to Ireland? You know, it's almost impossible now to get a missionary visa if you're not British into the Republic of Ireland. It's almost impossible. But you can go. My dear friends, I'm utterly convinced that a healthy, godly grief for the glory of God is the fuel that will keep you going and the fuel that will drive you forward. And what I want us to do now um, is to shut our eyes and to come before God and to ask Him that question, Father, are you calling me to go? He'll make it clear. So why don't we come and pray before a holy and almighty God and be challenged by Him. Father Lord, we are men and women Jesus Christ, the Christ who died, the Christ who grieved for the lost, who grieved for your glory. And we pray, Lord, for your spirit to grieve us for your glory. Lord, should I go? Who in my street can I go to tonight or tomorrow? Who in my country can I go to this week, this month, this year? Lord, are you sending me elsewhere? 
pray that you would make it clear to us your intentions and purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.